Thanks, everybody. Um, some of you may not know that I'm going to seminary. Wonderful, long classes. We're doing Old Testament right now. It's great. My professor actually in Old Testament, we used these scripture verses that we're gonna be talking about today for three lectures. I talked to Jerry, he said, three lectures in seminary equals six months in sermons. I think that's, no, is that right? Oh, okay. Let's read from Genesis chapter one, verse one and following. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let the, them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly up above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and every thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless his word. Would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning? Our Father, we give you thanks and praise. We confess to you how presumptive we are about everything. Our fallen hearts are so eager to believe lies and reject truth. Please convict us and compel us to desire your truth. Give us eyes to recognize all that turns our hearts away from you. We pray this morning for our sister churches. I pray that you might empower and guard their pastors as they proclaim your truth. That you would give every member ears to hear your word and hearts that are eager and ready to obey. Work in and through us, Lord, to make your name glorious in our city. We live in a world that is obsessed with pettiness and sin and self. Lord, protect our eyes and our hearts. Nourish our souls with righteousness. We pray for our community. We're grateful for this community in which we live. What a blessing it is. But we pray that you might do a divine and supernatural work here, not just one of affluence and comfort, and luxury, that you would interrupt our comfortable lives and ignite our affections for you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name in this place here today. We thank you for the privilege to worship you. May you find our worship honorable and pleasing. I pray that you will speak to each of us this morning, that we might have our vision filled with your glory, 
you would change us, that you would make us like Christ. May today be the day of salvation for that one who is lost. Make glad the downcast hearts today as we see your greatness. Make humble the proud and self-reliant. And do it all, Lord, for our sanctification and for your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. A little girl once asked Albert Einstein if scientists pray. He replied, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifested in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of a man, and one in the face in which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. In a later interview, as he was approaching his 50th birthday, someone asked him if he believed in God. This is what he said. He said, I am not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We're in the position of a little child, entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows something must have written those books. He does not know how. He knows he does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly do we understand these laws. Today we began a series through this wonderful book known as Genesis. I've never preached through Genesis. I've taught through it, but never preached through it. And I'm looking forward to this journey with you. Genesis, as Nathan alluded to earlier, is about beginnings. It's about origins. Every important doctrine that we hold to has its seed in this book. It's why it's so important for us. It's why it comes under such an assault in our culture, in our world. It always has. Be assured, it will not answer every question that you have. But we will learn what God has deemed important for us to know. You see, God does give out information on a need-to-know basis. Today we focus on verse number one, actually. And in this verse, we're going to explore five features of creation. Five important truths about creation that are contained, packed into this concise verse of Scripture. We're going to look at creation's cause, its expanse, its chronology, its purpose, and its Redeemer. So let's dive in. Creation's cause. What are we talking about? In the beginning, the scripture says, God created the heavens and the earth. Other than John 3.16, this may be the most infamous verse in the entire Bible. Ten words, one emphatic declaration filled with endless, bottomless truth waiting to be mined. We begin 
things all the time. You began a new book. You began a new hobby. You began a trip. You began planning your vacation. You began an email. You began a project to improve your home. But our beginnings always have things that proceed before them. Always something is there prior to us beginning. But this particular beginning is absolutely unique in that it is unlike any others. You see, it is the beginning, the moment when everything that is began, when it all started. There was nothing before it but God. God was there. In the beginning, God created. God spoke and everything that is came into existence. Now, many have attempted to explain our origins. They've tried to figure out how we came to be. And many have twisted themselves into innumerable contortions trying to Uh, make it make sense from a human perspective. Frankly, most of them don't believe that these first 11 chapters of Genesis are believable, that they're trustworthy. In fact, many of them look at these first 11 chapters with a great deal of disdain. Why is that? Well, I think it's simple. I think it's because human beings work very hard to eliminate any need for God. They work to eliminate any need for Yahweh. You see, man wants to be his own God. This is the problem in the Garden of Eden that we'll unpack later on. This is the problem that we all have, is that we want to be our own authority. This is my life. I'll live it the way I want to. I'll have the things that I want. And certainly not submit myself to another. Especially one that I can't see. There are countless numbers of theories that are promoted to as truth in the place of God's truth, but no one was there to observe any of those things. People tell us that it took millions and millions and even billions of years for us to get where we are, that something spontaneous occurred and began, but no one was there to authenticate the story, to validate it. But we do have God's testimony. The one who he says in the beginning was the only one there. He gives us very clearly what the beginning looked like. What did God do before creation's beginning? This is something that troubles my mind. Have you ever thought about that? In the beginning, God created. And I think about God is eternal. And there was a fixed point in time where everything came into being because God spoke it into being. What was going on prior to that? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. What were God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit doing together all those eons before the beginning? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't deign that we should be informed about these things matters. What occupied God's time? What does he share here that needs, what we find in scripture is that God doesn't need anything. And this works against some of the 
infamous theories that we've developed as human beings. We have this idea that God created because he needed us in some way, that there was something deficient in his character. The scripture says that's not true, that God was perfect, God is sufficient, God is completely content in himself, that there's no weakness, no deficiency in the Godhead. So why did he create Well, the scripture says that he chose to create in order to display his essence, his character, his glory for all to observe, to see, to worship. Now, we think of that in terms of arrogance, the pridefulness that we would want to elevate ourselves or exalt ourselves. But for God, in the essence of who he is, there is no pride or arrogance there. For God to withhold his glory would be the egregious thing here. And so he is created in order to display the essence of who he is, that he might be acknowledged, that he might be celebrated, that he might be honored and worshiped. He created by simply speaking. He spoke and everything that was came into being. Prior to this moment, there were no gases. There was no matter, there was nothing, only God. Man ties himself into knots trying to explain how, when, and why. I don't believe that human beings can know the depths of this mystery, of this story. But I do believe that God has created us with a curiosity to know why. What's the point? Why unpack all of this? If there's so much left to mystery in all of this, why did he do it? Well, I think there's a journey here for us. As God created us with this insatiable curiosity to know, to explore, to examine, to learn who he is, and therefore as we learn who he is, then we are compelled to worship him, to honor him and exalt him. Ancient philosophies claim the world resulted from conflict between many gods. Man's eager to believe such myths and legends. I laugh at those things when I think about them. You know, they're posed as the alternative to God's truth, to God's story. And people say, well, I can't believe God's story. You know, I just, I believe that there's too much faith required there. And I think, but yet you can believe that there were numerous gods out there that had this big war going on and somehow everything came into being through that war. Did some spontaneous explosion result in beauty and order and sustainability? When? Tell me when. We're we're confronted continually with uh, events that are explosive and violent. Show me one that has resulted in perfect order and beauty. Just doesn't happen, does it? Moses is clear. Yahweh is the true, supreme, sovereign God. He makes this dramatic declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I can't help but think, as Moses was writing this, some things must have been entering his mind as he's thinking about the children of Israel. 
Remember, they spent 400 years as a people in bondage and slavery to Egypt. Egypt had many gods. I mean, the whole, the whole 10 plagues before their escape was God demonstrating that all their gods were just figments of their imagination, illusions, not really gods. And if they were gods by some slim chance, God proved himself to be the superior supreme God, right? Well, just think about this for a minute. The chief god of Egypt was Re, the sun. They worshiped the sun as their supreme god. Moses said when Yahweh spoke everything into being, he didn't even get to the sun until day four. He knew exactly what he was doing as he shared God's witness for us all to observe. Creation's source is Yahweh, not some random event that took place anywhere, but by design and by intentionality. Next, I want you to see creation's expanse. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I can't help myself. I get law. I wish I had Steve Jones's knowledge on science and all these things, but it boggles my mind when I start thinking about creation. When I start thinking about space and all that's out there. And so I couldn't help myself this week. I had to do some research in this area. And think about our earth and our solar system. We're, we're pretty, we're pretty uh, we think a lot of ourselves, don't we? Our, our world kind of revolves around this little blue ball called earth and our solar system. But it's all so much more vast than that. More vast, greater. If you got on a plane and flew around our earth today, you could circle the globe in about a day and a half. 700 miles an hour commercial airliner, right, Bo? I mean, that's, that might be a little fast even for an airplane. But 24,000 miles, almost 25,000 miles, you could circle the globe in a day and a half. If you could somehow get close enough to circle our sun, it would take you 150 days to circle it. And the sun's just an average star. Now, this morning I was going to do, I was going to do an object lesson, but I decided not to. But I was going to take a basketball and let that represent the sun and place it right here at the pulpit. Now, think about that. A basketball is approximately 30 inches in circumference. All right? Set it right there in front of the pulpit this morning. Now, earth would be like a BB and would be out there in the foyer. And Mars would be out on the front lawn and about half the size of the BB. Pluto, and, I, and listen, I know it's not technically a planet anymore, but it serves my purpose this morning. Pluto would be like a pinpoint on a piece of paper and it would be located over at Dr. Gaston's veterinary clinic Crabapple Knoll okay you with me now Pluto orbits around the sun right it goes around the sun it travels at more than 10,000 miles an hour around the sun do you know how long it takes it to make a lap 
Kentucky, Kentucky Derby's coming in a couple of weeks or two or three weeks, something like that. And, uh, I, you know, they call it the most exciting two minutes in sports. Those horses go around that track a mile and a quarter. They travel at 37 miles an hour on the average, those horses. Takes them about two minutes to get around the track. Pluto, on its track, going around the sun, takes 248 years at 10,000 miles an hour. In other words, next year, next year, Pluto will cross the starting point that it began when our Declaration of Independence was signed. It's made one lap since our Declaration was signed. That's a pretty big area, right? Do you know they've discovered a star? One of those big super giant high, you know, I don't know. They put a bunch of, bunch of descriptors in front of it. A star that is so massive that if you plopped it down in the middle of our solar system, its outer boundaries, its surface boundaries would reach almost to Pluto. It's 5,000 light years away. They say it's dying, could already be dead. We just haven't seen the evidence of that yet because it's not gotten here. You look up on a clear night into the sky, you see all those stars. Did you know the closest star to us is 93 million miles away? I mean, these are mind-blowing figures, right? The North Star is the brightest. You can see it in this northern hemisphere where we live. You see it almost every night. It burns at a 4,000, its intensity is 4,000 times brighter than the sun. If you could get on a vessel traveling at 25,000 miles per hour, it would take you a billion hours to get to it. You couldn't do that in this life, could you? It's 25 trillion miles away. I have enough trouble figuring a million. I can't begin to think about a trillion. Psalm 19.1, this puts everything into context. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, we're going to see as we go through this first chapter, and you heard it as, as it was being read earlier, all this vast space, God spent almost no time describing how he created all this stuff. I mean, just, just in passing, right? And God, God created the stars. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Oh, that's the outer universe. What about the internal universe? Think about your brain. I know, it's tough, right? <laughs> you know your brain is 60% fat? Isn't that disgusting? So it brings a new meaning to the terminology fathead. When somebody calls you a fathead, they're actually, you know, it's true. Do you know your brain isn't fully formed till you're 25? Some of you still got hope. <laughs> and some of us, it just blew right by us. 
The brain's storage capacity is considered to be unlimited. You know, we have to go and rent storage space, don't we, to put some of our material things in. But your brain is an unlimited storage bin. It's not storing things there that's the problem. It's retrieving them for some of us. Brain information travels at 268 miles per hour. DNA. What about the DNA in your body? We all watch these crime-solving shows, right, on TV where DNA is a big deal in the forensic evidence. You know, if your DNA is found, you're cooked. Everybody's DNA is unique. Basically, it's in the form of a, a double helix. We've all seen these designs probably, a spiral within a spiral that grafted in there somehow is the code to who you are, physically speaking. It carries all your genetic information, and it can replicate itself. If you put all the DNA in your body into one space, it would fit inside of an ice cube. It's spread out in almost all the cells throughout your being. But if you you were to press it in and contain it in one area, it would all fit in an area the size of an ice cube. On September the 5th, 1977, I was in high school. Voyager 1 space probe was launched from Cape Canaveral aboard a Titan Centaur rocket. It's been speeding through space at an average speed of 38,000 miles per hour. It's been going ever since it was launched, almost a million miles every day. Voyager 1 is the first spacecraft to travel beyond the heliopause into interstellar space, which means it got beyond the, the gravitational impact of the sun. So it's passed out of our solar system now, and it's going where no one thought it was going to go. Voyager 1 will technically, so to speak, run out of gas in 2025. And at that point, it will have traveled more than 15 billion miles. But guess what? That's less than half the length of the DNA strands contained in your body if they were all joined end to end. If you took all the DNA strands in your body and connected them into one long string, the distance would be something like 32 million miles. Billion? Billion. Billion miles. Would stretch across the entire diameter of the solar system. It gives new meaning, does it not, to what the psalmist says, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God's wisdom and creativity and power is simply astounding. How is that even possible? And these are the things that we have been able to discern and and know. God spoke all this into being. Do you think that just happened? Do those things just happen? Nothing exists apart from God creating it and sustaining it by His Word. Then we see creation's chronology. What do we mean by chronology? Well, creation was perfectly organized and arranged in a particular sequence. This is all an ordered process, not random. There are all kinds of theories about creation, but most of them have as their core guiding principle evolutionary theory. 
You see, man is intent upon eliminating the need for God, moving Yahweh out of the formula. And so in order to do that, in order to bring some kind of rational explanation to why we have what we have, and to explain the complexity that we have, even as human beings in the way we exist and function, we have to have all these millions and millions and billions of years so that the mutation and change can take place. I'll never forget, we visited uh, the Grand Canyon years ago when our children were smaller. And as we were walking around, you couldn't help but overhear these guides out there as they were giving their spiel to groups they were touring around the rim of the canyon. And every one of them said this, not in these exact words, but essentially they said this, what you see before you is the evidence of what happens with a little bit of water over millions and millions and millions and millions of years. I couldn't help but think to myself, There's no evidence there of a trickle of water over millions and millions of years. What we see is the evidence of violence that took place, a lot of water in a short period of time. There's nothing calm and peaceful and gradual evidence there. Evolutionary theories take the long-term look at the emergence of the human species. According to this perspective, humans of today carry with them genetically guided characteristics passed from generation to generation that have contributed to survival and reproductive success. This is what is advocated. If God intended to describe creation, how should he go about doing it? You would expect that God would do it in plain language, right? And I think that's what he did. I don't know why we feel like we have to jump over ourselves, go through all these calisthenics, trying to find some way to make it fit our idea. Most everything God did, he did very, in a very straightforward manner. If he were going to do it over eons of time, why not just say so? Why describe it as days with mornings and evenings? Why describe it as seven days and not long ages? I think God was being very intentional. It was all formless and void, we're told. The imagery here is that of a potter taking, in God's instance, creating these raw materials and plopping it down on the center of the wheel. And there's this expectation, this foreboding, this immediacy that's before him as he begins to mold and fashion and shape creation into what he wants it to be. And he does it intentionally over these seven days. Why? Well, he's setting a pattern for the way we live our lives. We work practically for six days each week, and then the seventh day is set apart for rest that we might worship God. There's a chronology, there's an order, there's an intentionality to creation. And then we see creation's purpose. The Bible is God's great and marvelous story. There are four primary aspects of this story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And if you take out any one of those elements, the rest of it all falls apart. The rest of it all comes apart at the seams. Scripture sheds light on God's purposes for creating all that he did create. 
He created it for himself. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He created for his own will and his own pleasure. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He created the universe for his own glory. As we said, saw in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 43, 6 B through 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And he created to reveal his power and his wisdom. Ephesians 3, 9 and 10, To bring delight for everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold witness and wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And then I would submit to you, there is evidence for creation's redeemer. As Nathan, again, pointed out to you earlier, at this point in the beginning, we would not expect there to be a need for a redeemer because everything is good. Everything even is very good. Nothing has been lost or corrupted at this point. But we know what's lurking, do we not? We know what's coming in chapter 3. An audacious and scandalous rebellion is about to break out. Adam and Eve will brazenly deny and defy God's commands, His instructions. And the good creation will be plunged into ruin and depravity. Brokenness and lostness will characterize all that God has made. If there's any hope for the future, then deliverance is required. A redeemer must come forth. A faithful and true hero to pay the price for restoration and bring about the reclamation project. Christ Jesus is such a savior and deliverer. Now, some will say he's not present in this text, pastor. You're making this up. We see the spirit there in the next verse hovering over these raw materials, over the waters as God prepares to create. But I would say, be careful. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. So who's the Word? Well, John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ. Christ is the Word. And the Word was with him. Christ created with the Father. John 17, 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24 of chapter 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Nathan read Colossians 1, 16 and 17 for you earlier. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Creation's cause, creation's expanse, creation's chronology, Creation's purpose, creation's redeemer. It's all here before us, right out of the gate, pressing in upon us, giving us everything we need to understand all that's going to unfold in God's story as we move forward. So what do we take away from this? What do we do with this truth? I want to give you just three or four, briefly, three or four things to think about. One You should be giving consideration to how you view the world. You should be thinking about your worldview. What lens do you see life? Through what lens do you see all of creation? Through what lens do you see everything that is? You need to revisit your worldview in light of what God says to us in His Word. And secondly... We have a conviction, I think, that needs nurturing. It's true that we are created in God's image, yet creation reveals a God who is not like us. How do we reconcile that? What does that mean exactly? God says, let us make man in our own image. But then when we read the scriptures, when we read the account of this creation, we're brought face to face with the reality that he is not like us. And yet... How often we attempt to reduce God to be like human beings. We want to bring him down to our level. How do you try to make yourself your own God and authority? We also are aware that there's an important way in which we should live this life. We should live this life in a particular way. Creation, even in its brokenness, reveals intentionality and beauty and order. Recognize the futility of human theories and ideas regarding your origins and your destination. Recognize and celebrate the reality of God's person, His plans, His ways, His purposes. And also, we're reminded that we have an important purpose to pursue and nurture. Creation reveals a God who is bigger and more powerful than we can ever know. 
He is alone. He alone is God over our origins and our destination. We should be nurturing and working in a disciplined fashion to intensify our passions to pursue him and worship him. To understand that he and he alone is worthy of praise and honor. If what scripture tells us is true, and there's no reason to believe it's not, then we have every reason to worship God with all that we are, with great passion and zealousness, and letting nothing stand between us and doing that. I hope and trust that these things can serve as a prism through which we view this study of Genesis. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thinking about the power, the wisdom, the knowledge that you possess as we think about how you went about creating all that we know and how in such a cavalier fashion, Lord, we as human beings are prone to explain it away or try to put it in terms that make us the center of everything. Lord, I pray that you would uh, circumvent those things that have been uh, indoctrinated into our minds and beings uh, for years as we've lived on this earth. And that, Lord, in your Spirit's power, you might be able to cleanse and purge uh, our thoughts, our desires, Lord, our attitudes, and that you might write afresh and anew the truth of your word upon us, that we might see things more clearly, that we might see all of these precious doctrines that we study about regularly in Scripture and how they, they do press in upon us and how they're so uh, impactful, important for us and having an accurate view of them. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and use this, Lord, to renew our faith and trust in you. Lord, we give you praise and honor for the gospel. And we pray that, Lord, our hearts should be filled with its truth today. And that we might worship you in a way that indeed is pleasing and honorable. In Jesus' name, amen.